Welcome to the Volpe Report podcast, the state's premier public affairs show dedicated to the topics that matter most to Pennsylvanians. I'm your host, Chuck Volpe. Join us now as we speak to this week's guest. The following half-hour show is a paid political program and is not endorsed by this station, management, or staff. The following program is sponsored by Excalibur Insurance Management Services. We welcome to this week's show a special guest, the Majority Leader of the Pennsylvania Senate, Joe Pittman, who represents the 41st Senatorial District, which includes Armstrong, Indiana, Jefferson, and part of Westmoreland counties. The leader's ascension has been meteoric and is almost a historical anomaly. Senator Pittman was first elected to the Senate in 2019 in a special election to complete the unexpired term of Senator Don White. Pittman had served as White's chief of staff prior to his election to the unexpired term. Senator Pittman was then re-elected to his own four-year term in 2020. If you're keeping score, that means he has achieved the highest echelon of power in his first term in the Senate. I'm not sure that's ever happened before. His path to leadership was facilitated by the types of committees he sits on. For example, appropriations, consumer protection, banking and insurance, professional licensure, the judiciary, and last but not least, environmental resources and energy. Looking at his early years, Joe was born and raised in Indiana County, and surprisingly, Upon his graduation from Purchase Line High School, he was appointed to the school board, where he served until he graduated from the Pennsylvania State University with a baccalaureate degree in political science. The senator currently resides in Indiana County with his wife, Gina, and their four children. We look forward to discussing with him today his meteoric rise, as well as his take on new governor Josh Shapiro's proposed budget. Subject matter will include spending, energy policy, school choice, among other things. This is the Volpe Report, a weekly news and political interview show examining the latest local, state, and national issues with Chuck Volpe. Insightful, informative, controversial. The area's premier political talk show, The Volpe Report. Mr. Leader, welcome to The Volpe Report. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm sure that has to have a nice ring to it. Your your career, which is, I'll say, is rather, rather meteoric in the four years uh, since your ascension by special election to the Senate. Uh, and the committee assignments you have in that short time suggest an extremely uh, talented and uh, successful person to navigate the halls of the General Assembly. And, and we're going to talk a little bit on this show. My audience has already heard your wonderful resume, but you sit on some of the most powerful committees. Now you are the majority leader of the Pennsylvania Senate. I could quip, I guess, that the only step higher would be president pro tem, which I would add could only curtail your power as as majority leader. But uh, congratulations. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And I think at the end of the day, my focus has always been and will always be on the 255,000 people I represent. I've been fortunate to be elected by my constituents to serve them in Harrisburg for what I view as a contract. And that contract comes and goes with elections, and I fully recognize and appreciate that. But I'm looking forward to representing 
my constituents in this new position and also working on behalf of our majority caucus in Harrisburg to, to advance common sense policies in the Commonwealth. Well, let, let's start out, uh, you know, in no particular order because the committees are all significant. Uh, mm -hmm. you, you were a member of the House, sorry, the Senate Appropriations Committee. Um, talk a little bit about your role there because obviously you have for the last four years, you're dealing with a new governor now, Josh Shapiro, but obviously for mm -hmm. four years you had Governor Tom Wolf, and of course the chief executive uh, cannot appropriate anything. It comes from you guys in the legislature. So talk about your priorities uh, in a leadership role on appropriations. I can talk, I actually, all the money you've already brought back to your district this year, millions and millions of dollars. I get, keep, get alerts on all that you've done. But as, talk about some of the issues that we face with the governor, because we'll later segue into the bipartisanship to move Pennsylvania forward. And I'll say one more thing before I give you the floor is this. When I was talking actually with uh, uh, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Democrat Joanna McClinton the other day uh, on the show, I had commented to her that I got used to Governor Wolf's budget address or state of the state or you know budget presentation. Usually the Republican response came swiftly, which was never, no chance, dead on arrival, never see the light of day. And this governor, for the first time, there seemed to be somewhat of a spirit of some bipartisanship. So from your appropriations experience, you were literally front and center on some of those fights going back to Governor Wolf. So talk about what you expect going forward with this governor. Well, we're very fortunate to have a chairman of our appropriations committee, Senator Scott Martin from Lancaster County. And Scott is very dynamic. He's very thoughtful and he's very thorough. And that's what we need as a chair of that committee. As a, as a member of the committee for the last four years, it has been very eye-opening and enlightening for me, particularly with the prior administration. And you're right, I found Governor Wolf to be simply intractable on a number of levels. I think he set an extraordinarily low bar for future governors. This governor, I think, has taken a much more safe approach in terms of the budget he proposed. You didn't see a lot of the broad policy initiatives that were candidly unachievable that Governor Wolf completely tread out year over year over year. I think my biggest concern with what Governor Shapiro has proposed is the overall amount of spending, not only that he projects in the upcoming year, but in the years to come. The reality is we do have a good financial position right now in the Commonwealth. But the dollars that we have in our rainy day fund are one-time dollars. And once we use them, they're gone. And I assure you, there will be a rainy day in our future. And so the biggest point of contention I think we're going to have is how much are we going to actually spend? Because at the end of the day, unlike our friends at the federal government, we have to balance our budget. Well, well, I'll add, uh, and I was a Democrat for 45 years, Senator, but I will say this, I was one of the rare bird, actually not just moderate, conservative Democrats when that term wasn't counterintuitive. But getting back to the point, um, a lot of what I've read in the budget so far has projections to, to suggest that this is going to pay for and balance out as we go forward all this extra spending, but it's based on projections of increased revenue. 
my experience in that is that revenue doesn't always materialize. And, and now we're talking about budget deficits. So your comment on that. You're absolutely right. And when we look at our revenues as they've been coming in, particularly over the last six months, while overall they remain ahead of estimate, there is one big area that is a red flashing light for me. And that red flashing light is the tax revenue we're getting from the real estate transfer tax. That's a tax whenever properties are sold. And that number has collapsed. And so that tells me that the real estate market is is freezing up. And when the real estate market freezes up, that to me is a harbinger for difficult economic times ahead. We have to pay very close attention to that. You know, I, I want to look back at, I talked about his budget addresses. Uh, you know, a bunch of the things that our former governor made history for, none of it good. I, you know, you have to say, what, what will history remember? And well, the one thing he got done, he was bad enough during the lockdowns, which, which irretrievably hurt Pennsylvania forever, that he got stripped of his authority <laughs> by the voters of Pennsylvania. So I guess you want to call that an accomplishment. He also was the first governor in history to not sign a budget in his first term, which, which, which was historical. So again, getting back to the bipartisan, I'm hearing from your chamber, uh, obviously from President Pro Tem, Senator Kim Ward, and the Democratic, her colleague, Joanna McClinton, of this spirit of hopefully partnership. So talking about some of the issues you have with it, what are the grounds of compromise you see where there's legitimate areas that we can come together as a state? I, I think transportation funding is at the top of the list. For too long, we have used the gas tax to fund the Pennsylvania State Police. Let me be very clear, the Pennsylvania State Police need and deserve every penny that we provide them to ensure our public safety. But at the end of the day, what motorists pay at the pump should be used for roads and bridges and transportation purposes. And it's time that we get those dollars back to that purpose. And I think that one of the areas that we have common ground on is with the surplus we have, now is the time to further get the state police out of that motor license fund and get back to repairing our roads and bridges. I think that is one area that is absolutely at the top of the list for consensus and compromise. The other is environmental and energy policy. We all want clean air. We all want clean water. We've seen what happened in East Palestine and the difficulties there. We need to ensure that what we're doing economically coincides with managing our environment in a smart way. I think this governor is taking a much more pragmatic approach to some of the energy and environmental issues that the previous governor has had attempted to unfold. So I think those are two areas where I think we can see common ground. And then, of course, at the end of the day, when we talk about the needs in the labor force, the governor's proposed some areas for tax credit incentives for certain professions. I'm not necessarily convinced that's the right approach, but I think it does speak to the reality of how tight our labor force is in this Commonwealth. And we've got to get people back to work and encourage people, able-bodied people, to enter into our labor force. Yeah. Before we go to our first break, Senator, I want to ask you about, uh, again, something you're very involved in, 
Uh, I, you know, it's Penn Vest, obviously, I want to talk about. You're on the board of directors. But for the audience benefit, I don't have all this committed to memory. I'm starting to show my age a little bit. It's the Pennsylvania Infrastructure Investment Authority. You're on the board of directors there. Now, let's tie that back into what you say. Infrastructure, you're talking about roads and, road, roads and bridges. And I would like to clarify one, one thing, because sometimes, and I've been critical of the Democrats, the national ones especially, on this show about their infrastructure bill that was heralded, $1.2 trillion that were signed. But they put so many uh, hang-ups that if you don't do it a certain way, dedicated to completely green energy and to the detriment of oil and fossil fuel and natural gas, it was a no-go on the money. So it almost became a social thing instead of an infrastructure thing. So to, to your back, to get your comment on that. As you sit on that board of directors, uh, what role, so people understand, does PennVest play in this whole thing? PennVest is focused on supplying public water and public sewage to communities and to put the dollars in place to help make it affordable. Public water in particular is absolutely critical to any economic opportunity, any economic development home ownership if you don't have a reliable source of water for your home it's not your home and so that's been the focus of penvest and it's been a huge area of opportunity for western pennsylvania to clean up streams by taking sewage out of streams to put public water supplies in areas particularly that have been affected by mining particularly decades ago so it's it's been a great effect. But to your point, Chuck, that part of what funds PennVest is natural gas. You know, we, we hear a lot about the fact that Marcella Shell doesn't pay, quote, a tax. Well, that's inaccurate. They pay an impact fee, an impact tax. And actually, a good amount of that money goes to PennVest to help fund public water and public sewage in communities and make them affordable. So that's an example of how your economic advancement ties into benefiting your communities in a way that helps the environment. And I think that's some of what we've lost sight on. And you're right, particularly federally, they use the dollars that they appropriate to drive a social agenda. Sometimes it's less direct than others, but invariably they're driving a social agenda with those dollars. And to me, that's the wrong way to do it. Uh, agreed, uh, Senator. We are going to take a short break. The audience will heal, hear one of my views they're, they're accustomed to hearing. Uh, and we'll be right back after this message. Stay with us. Are you old enough to remember Hooker Chemicals Love Canal near Niagara Falls, where years of toxic waste was dumped on a tract of land, which was later sold and where then a school and housing development were constructed. Several years after construction was finished, the chemicals dumped there started oozing out of the ground. The site was later dubbed a Superfund site after high rates of cancer were reported. The chemicals were so toxic, the sneakers of children playing there were actually melting. Last year, I told viewers about polyfluoracyl, or PFAS, these chemicals are in a class called forever chemicals because they are extremely difficult, if not impossible, to get rid of and are suspected as the cause of several different kinds of cancers and lower birth weights. When my view on these dangerous chemicals aired, the Environmental Protection Agency's allowable limits 
of PFAS in drinking water was 70 parts per trillion. Soon after that report aired, the EPA substantially tightened advisory levels for drinking water. But the new advisory levels are just that, an advisory. The EPA only recommends that utilities notify customers when concentrations exceed that limit. The EPA so far has isolated nearly 2,900 sites where PFAS have been found. Not only are these forever chemicals found in drinking water supplies, they are found in nonstick cookware, firefighting equipment, raincoats, and even fast food packaging. This raises alarms about the use of these compounds, especially in items such as burger wrappers and salad bowls. Some research has even demonstrated that PFAS levels are higher in people who regularly eat fast food. $2 billion in the bipartisan infrastructure law has been set aside to eliminate PFAS's and other emerging contaminants in drinking water. Quote, we know the substances migrate into the food you eat. This according to a nonprofit research organization in Switzerland. Food packaging tests were conducted by the magazine, Consumer Reports. The tests revealed the presence of PFAS's in numerous items, from paper bags for french fries to hamburger wrappers. Some fast food restaurants, including McDonald's, Burger King, and Chick-fil-A, committed to reducing PFAS's in their packaging, according to Consumer Reports. The good news here is that steps are being taken to reduce the levels of these dangerous chemicals. Let's hope those steps are not coming too late. Welcome back, Senator. Uh, we kind of finished up, but there are a couple of uh, comments uh, I'd like to at least get into. Uh, that is that uh, uh, relative to the energy situation, what I read and what I understand, and I want to get your feel for this topic in a general way, there are countries now that have been looked at in the European Union as completely green countries. And the European, of course, Union is very draconian on their move to green energy, to the complete elimination of all fossil fuel. But one country in particular, and I, it skips, I don't want to say the wrong one, but a rather prominent one. I almost want to say Finland, but I'm not positive. Uh, has now done a 180 and declared that natural gas is going to be reclassified as clean energy. And there are some other countries in Europe, in the Union, that are now looking at nuclear as something that had been taboo, and there's some return. And so I want your opinion on this as an expert. Are we finally getting to a point of compromise and reasonableness that they understand that the renewal, re, the green future, completely renewable energy they see through, uh, through you know, windmills and turbines and uh, glass and which requires the sun for, they, if they come to the realization that some days the wind doesn't blow and some days the sun doesn't shine and, and that we're going to need supporting what I'll call transitional fuels uh, to get us to the next 40, I want your comment as somewhat of an expert in this area on that. Is there any light at the end of that tunnel? I sure hope so, because a lot of the renewable push is, in fact, a house of cards. And if you don't believe it, to your point, look at Europe. Look at what Putin's thuggery has done to Europe. Europe tried to sell themselves as green, but yet the reality is they were using 
Russia's natural resources to fuel themselves. And when Putin invaded Ukraine, it all came crashing down. And if it wasn't for an unseasonably warm winter in Europe, they'd had even bigger problems than what they already did. And so to me, energy independence is national security. And that is what has been the strength of our nation, in my opinion. And the natural resources beneath our feet need to be responsibly used. And when you look at the evolution of how we've used our natural resources, it has helped us reduce emissions while increasing our productivity. The coal-fired power plants that we have had closed throughout Pennsylvania, the reality is they have closed not because of solar panels and windmills. Government regulation has been a part of that, but the biggest piece of it is the Marcellus Shell, the natural gas coming to the marketplace, being used to produce electricity. And the reality is it's been a cheaper form of electricity. Now, I could go on about our energy market for hours, but we need to have a balanced and competitive electricity marketplace. We've all seen consumers hit with extraordinarily high energy bills over the last couple months. A lot of that is because the price of natural gas has spiked. The price of natural gas spiked because of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, and it caused coal-fired energy to become more important and more competitive on the grid. And there are only two sources of electricity that can move with demand, coal and natural gas. Renewables can't do it. Right. Nuclear is stuck in neutral. Right. That's all we have, and we have to embrace them both and make them both more efficient, but embrace them both so we have that viable electricity network. On this show last fall was uh, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who may actually and I think he has announced he's formed a committee to run for president. Um, we had a, a, it was an illuminating uh, and for educational uh, instruction for me. When he pointed out, you mentioned that how dependent European nations and our NATO allies are dependent on Russian natural gas and energy from Vladimir Putin. Well, he pointed out that we had Russian tankers rolling up New York and New Jersey interstates delivering natural Russian gas and oil in the United States of America. And then we wonder, you know, and I love these progressives that want to talk about, you know, the utopia that they dream about. It bothers me. And in one of the ways it bothers me, it is completely compromising our ability to defend our country and to have a say in the geopolitical world order as we see. If we were strong and we could, and, and our European and NATO allies could come to the United States for their energy needs, they could have thrown Putin a finger and pretty much lined up with Ukraine. And to your point, Senator, there would have been no invasion. So that's what's at stake. I, the, I call them progressive dullards. They can only see like a horse with blinders on right in front of their face. We all want clean air and energy, to your point. But at what cost and when and how are we going to transition it? So your comment on... on you know, talk about our strategic disadvantage right now. We have gone in three years from being an oil exporter to an oil and natural gas importer. Talk about that, please. I'm going to go back to some of the comments about Russia. And again, I'll go back to the invasion. I'll never forget, I was looking at Politico, hardly a right-wing rag. But the big headline in Politico was, what do we do if we take away our access to Russia's nickel, a rare earth mineral? And what is needed 
in windmills and solar panels, nickel. And so the concern was, you know, if we can't use the nickel from Russia, we can't build solar panels and windmills. Well, in that article is a picture of a nickel mine, a nickel mine planted squarely in the Arctic. And there that nickel mine is with um, reservoirs around it of excess fluids and smoke pluming into the atmosphere. And to me, it just underscored that this is not Alice in Wonderland. No matter what form of energy we want to have, there is going to be an environmental impact. And so we have to get past this point of thinking that this just magically appears and recognize that no matter what we do, there's some level of environmental impact. And we have to understand that whether it's an impact across the Atlantic or an impact on our borders, I'd much rather control the impact that happens here. Because let's face it, China and India and Russia, they don't care about their environment the way we care about it. And so all we're doing is we're enabling environmental abuse to occur across the planet, but it's out of sight and out of mind, and somehow we're supposed to feel better about it. To me, it's wrong-headed approach from beginning to end. Yeah, uh, agreed. We, we have only a few minutes left, Senator. I want to talk about so much, so much to cover, so little time. Uh, I was a little, well, I was surprised about a lot of things with our current governor and, and his move to the right. And let me clarify, I don't mean he's right. I mean his move to the right from the far left. So he's, I'll consider heading to the moderate or center part, which is what you need to do to govern to me, Republican or Democrat. Our population of poll after poll, American citizens, Pennsylvania citizens, poll very heavily in, in the center. So one of the things, I'll be honest, that surprised me was that his seeming openness to school vouchers. So uh, whereas just, of course, that was a non-starter for Governor Wolf, no-go, public, public education or nothing. Your, your take on that, you're in a major leadership role, obviously, in this Commonwealth What's the prospect with our new governor for school vouchers and uh, giving parents a choice in their children's education? The time will certainly tell. I mean, his rhetoric on the campaign trail and so far during his time in office has been very centrist. The key question is going to be, will that be followed through with policies that empower parents? You know, I fundamentally believe that parents have the ultimate responsibility for their child's education also means the parents need to take responsibility for their child's education. But to me, parental empowerment is the key. The Senate Republican majority has always been an advocate for that in various forms and fashions. As you pointed out, the voters have sent us divided government. They did not send us dysfunctional government. And we're <laughs> going to figure out ways to do give and take here. But we as a majority in the Senate, have our own electoral mandate, and we're going to exercise that. We're going to find areas of common ground. We're not going to compromise principles. But I do think the governor, at least in his words so far, is showing that we may be able to find common ground on education policy, and I'm hopeful. But, you know, I've been around this uh, uh, rodeo before, and I've seen where rhetoric and words sometimes don't always match actions. Right. And I'm going to give the governor the benefit of the doubt until I see otherwise. But over the next 90 days, as we prepare a budget, that's when the tale will be told. No, no question about it. 
I, I hope, Mr. Lear, I can call you back when we get through those 90 days to kind of do a postmortem on what we talked about and what happened. And before I let you go, I have to just uh, uh, kind of an editorial comment. As I was looking to, through all of the funding you wrote back to your district, it's clear the most important constituency are those citizens you represent. Uh, and uh, funding that went to New Kensington. New Kensington is in Westmoreland County, of course. Near and dear to me, we actually insure New Kensington, and some of my closest friends in Westmoreland are in there, and you've done a lot for helping that beleaguered city that, that has been kind of down on it financially. But I also noticed a part of your district and a lot of funding went to Armstrong County. So I have to ask you this question. Uh, a good, good friend of mine, one of the founding board members of our, com our, our company, he uh, was the former executive director of the Armstrong County Housing Authority, Mike Caruso. Have you ever mm, had any yeah. occasion to know? He has a son yes. who's a 10th degree black belt and has one of the foremost martial arts teaching schools in Pennsylvania, Mike Jr. But is, is that right? I, I have interacted with Mike from time to time, but you're right. I mean, Armstrong County is, is a great community. My wife is from Armstrong County, the town of Rural Valley. So even though I live in Indiana County, I had to go to Armstrong County to find my beautiful bride. So they have a special place in my heart. And, and, you know, New Ken, Arnold, Lower Borough, great communities. They're new to the district. I'm getting to learn them. But what I'm, what I appreciate there is there's a lot of energy and drive in the communities and there's a desire to get those communities to back to where they once were. And I'm eager to do my part to help them out. With that, Senator, again, Mr. Leader, let me thank you for your time. Uh, look forward to talking to you more as we go forward as you do the work of public service that we are all thankful for. Thank you for your time. Well, Chuck, thank you for the opportunity. Let's do it again and let's book an hour next time. Okay? You got it, Mr. Mr. Leader. Thank you. All right. Bye. Thank you. We'll see ya. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Volpe Report podcast. Be sure to visit our YouTube and Facebook pages for upcoming episodes. You can catch up on the Volpe Report podcast on your favorite podcast provider.